Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 388, and this is a special crossover episode. My friend Mara and I have a show on YouTube called Are We There Yet? I'm sure you've heard me talking about it here on Hey Human before. This is a large excerpt from episode 16 of that show when we welcomed guest Dr. Mara Edelman. No relation to the Mara Edelman that I do the YouTube show with. It's just a wild coincidence that they have the same name. So Dr. Edelman specializes in the role of personal and social networks, including social support, cross-cultural adaptation, community formulation, and mate-seeking. She's coached public speaking at UCLA, taught at Northwestern University, and has worked and traveled all over the world. She's the author of several books, including Beyond Language and Fragile Community Living with AIDS and Communicating Social Support. She's also an artist and a musician, and she specializes in the language and contextual conversations be around sex. And it's a really interesting conversation we had. I'm excited to share it here as well. I think it's an important conversation. And technically, I guess my friend Mara is guest hosting Hey Human with me today <laughs> uh, as we interview Dr. Mara Edelman. So it's a very bizarre, uh, Loki-style crossover, multi-universe sort of thing. But that's how, how we roll. I do have a special announcement next week, so please tune in for that as we end the year. And yeah, that's uh, that's what I got to say about the show. Check out heyhumanpodcast.com for links and to learn more about my guests and the show itself. Check out susanruth.com to learn more about me and my other artistic endeavors. Follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my albums all over the place, everywhere you get music. I'm doing a redo on Spotify, and so I will not be having stuff on there for a little while. But look for that come the new year. And yeah, rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing the show around. Thanks for doing all the things and helping to to keep this show listened to because uh, I couldn't do it without you. So thank you for that. Be well. Take care of yourself. Uh, be kind. Uh, take care of each other. And here we go. This episode is The Birds and the Bees. I'm your host, Susan Ruth. And I'm your host, Mara Edelman. And today we have with us the other Mara Edelman, Dr. Mara Edelman. Thank you for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. How did you get started in your path of teaching people about sex and sex education and wellness? Well, uh, it was interesting. I was a doctoral student at University of Washington looking for a, a PhD topic. And uh, I was at the time reading Masters of Johnson's famous book on human sexuality. And their opening paragraph deals with the incompatibility of male and females, timing, sexual arousal, blah, blah, blah. And I immediately thought, well, what's the role of communication in all of this? So then I thought, oh, great, I have a topic. So I went to my advisor and I was cut short, very short. And I was told I could do that after I got tenure which was another 10 years away, because essentially sex talk would have been the kiss of death in academe. And it was the kiss of death until sex became death. And interestingly enough, the advent of AIDS 
gave us permission to start looking at sexuality uh, in more sociological terms. And I always said people have to die from pleasure before you can study pleasure. And I would say even to this day, there's a certain stigma with uh, sex simply for the act of pleasuring. It still, even my articles had to be coded as safe sex. So that was one of the discouraging factors. And then the lay public wasn't, no pun intended, wasn't any easier because usually when I talked about my interest in sex talk, they'd say, oh, you know, you want to study dirty talk, which when you think about it is an interesting category. I mean, think about it. Dirty talk. I mean, uh, it's interesting. It's uh, shaded in all the shame versus like feel good talk, passion talk, uh, you know, erotic talk. So I think that cultural category of dirty talk tells us something about the nature of us the discourse of intercourse. So anyway, that that was uh, I got started and it took me about 10 years after I got my PhD and I was uh, teaching at Northwestern and uh, a faculty advisor said to me, you can write about sex talk as long as it's coded in safe sex. So that's what I did. So that's how I got started. Do you feel that that has changed a little bit in, in the modern time? Uh, oh, absolutely. I think that shifted somewhat. But I think still among the general public, it's somewhat stigmatized. Uh, although, interestingly enough, phone sex is the number one industry, which tells us something about <laughs> the nature of sex talk itself. You know, uh, I remember once when I had an article accepted by the Journal of Human Sexuality, I called my mother. I was so excited. And she responded and she said, well, you wouldn't want to change your name, would you? <laughs> I, I think there's still some some taboos uh, around it. I would agree with that because when I tell people I'm a physician assistant, but I'm a sexologist on the side, I see something cross their face like it's uncomfortable still. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's still not uh, in the public domain. You know? Everybody does it. Nobody wants to talk about doing it. Well, there's a lot of reasons for that, too. And it's really interesting because... You know, Enjoy of Sex and Dr. Ruth's uh, Guide to Sex and stuff. I mean, they pose communication as the summa cum laude, pun intended, uh, between sexual partners. And it's also the root of sexual dissatisfaction. I mean, if you have better communication and blah, blah, blah. But if you look closely at their writing, it's very interesting. They're part of the silencing of sex talk because they keep talking about uh, pay attention to nonverbal cues, intuit your partner's expectations. Even in the book, Human Sexual Response, Masters and Johnson write that words are often secondary to the tone of voice, the facial expression, the look in your eyes. So we're bombarded with messages of uh, rejuvenating sexual play, achieving mutual arousal, sexual bliss. But we forget that Sexual activity and sexual gratification is really grounded in interaction, not just action. And so their depiction of, you know, attending to the nonverbal cues is a perpetual silencing that I see happening around sex talk. It's yeah. interesting when you bring up uh, self-gratification too. the idea that Amara and I have talked about this on the show before, that even in masturbation, there is a disconnect of communication for oneself and that it becomes all about this 
area usually, and that you don't, you kind of dissociate from your genitals and you're just getting off. You're just feeling good. And that there's a lot of disconnect from the body, really being in the body and being grounded in the body. Uh, Oh, absolutely. I mean, here's the interesting thing. When you don't talk, you can treat your partner as an object. Once you speak, you become a subject. You're embodied when you speak. Okay. I have a voice. I mean, it's more than just a metaphor. I have a voice. And once you begin talking, it's hard for people to discount the personhood that's that they're with. And so talk, I'll talk about this some more. It's extremely, extremely powerful. Here's the other issue. When we see in a really, really great review, uh, ethnographic study of sex education in the New York public school systems, Michelle Fine, a noted uh, uh, ethnographer, says there are four dominant discourses in sex education, the discourse of violence, rape, the discourse of morality, good girl, bad girl, the discourse of disease, herpes, STDs, and the discourse of desire, which is virtually silence. I mean, it's virtually silence. So early in my research, I, you know, you can't really put microphones under people's beds and stuff. This is really tough to study. So I decided to start initially interviewing people about sex talk. And that's when I became really shocked at what I discovered. I'll share this one anecdote. I was in a bar and I was asking a very good friend of mine about uh, sex talk. And, and she launched into this activity I and mean, this long discourse, rather loud and animated, I might add, about her sexual behaviors, toys, positions and so forth. And I'm trying to be the, you know, objective observer here. And I noticed the bar got a little quiet, <laughs> you know, as people were listening to her. And finally, I just said, hey, Sally, I, I'm not interested so much in your sex your behavior what do you actually say to your partner and then there was this giggle and she said oh mara now you're getting too personal <laughs> and i almost fell off my chair wow. i almost fell off my chair and later on i was interviewing a, a, a gentleman who was obviously very uh, sexually seasoned i might add and adventuresome and he said mara i think i could talk to you about you know, my sexual behavior and be pretty candid about it. But I'm sorry, when it comes to the talk, I just, I find that just too intimate. So this became the central thesis of all my work, that the sex talk is more taboo than sexual behaviors themselves. And that's because sex talk is sex. Ultimately, it's the height of sex. So that's fascinating. Yeah. The talk is more taboo. I'm I'm glad you're saying this because it's making me feel more comfortable. I'm a medical provider who sees and talks to people about this stuff. I'm a sexologist who sees and talks to people about this stuff. But my own ability to have the communication was not very good. So you're making me feel, you just normalize that for me. Thank you. (laughs) Well, those constraints that you feel, I mean, there are really good reasons for it. I mean, first of all, one of the things I do in my writing is to identify what I see are constraints in sex talk, because I think if we understand the constraints, okay, we can be a little bit easier on ourselves. But first of all, we have linguistic constraints. I mean, vocabulary itself. I mean, we have nice words, we have dirty words. 
we know that certain vocabularies, particularly erotic vocabularies, are much more restricted for females than they are for males. Okay. Then we've got, uh, you know, euphemisms. Okay. That what do those refer to? And then I remember earlier in my work on trying to identify the language itself, I went to a couple of linguists and one linguist said, you know, enough with the sex talk, Mara. All you need to do is elongate your vowels. Ah, eh, e, oh. Uh, I get whole audiences to do this, you know. <laughs> don't forget your diphthongs. You know, that's the ng. But you know, when you think about it, you've got elongating your vowels. It's really not much of a vocabulary. And then you've got a lot of medical terminology, which actually sounds more like an engineering project. They're hardly pronounceable. And and B talk about you know stopping the erotic slide. You know, I mean, vagina, really? Although I always go back to with young people, you should be calling it a vagina, not a queen purse, not a, I mean, yes, when you're sexually active, maybe there's more fun words, but teaching young people to call it what it is as a medical provider, I'm like, that's your vagina, that's your penis. If you want to call it a cock and something else fun later when you're older, feel free to do so. <laughs> a coin purse. I've never heard that one. Like a lot of people got a coin purse. I, I, I'd have to remember, but there's so many different words for these things. <sighs> yeah, and I, I think that one of the things that happens with couples, uh, and another article I write about the various discourses, is that they develop their own codes. Couples, I mean, it's part of intimacy. You have special words, you have humor, you have jokes. I would argue that uh, one of the things couples might explore in their sexual relationship is a, a dominant metaphor that signals that they're sexually interested. Uh, I, I was just thinking of a metaphor because I was afraid you'd ask me, like, for example, and I thought, well, the trains, I mean, are we on an express train, fast train, slow train? Are there a lot of stops, few stops? Are the trains ready to leave? You know, all, all of these kinds of metaphors that one uh, could explore. I was interested in, you know, where would be possible models? So I studied films. You know, I looked at movies when couples are about to have sex or they're signaling they're interested in sex. And here's what happens in most films. I mean, uh, Hitchcock was famous for this. They, they stop. The act stops and the train goes into the tunnel. The waves break into the shore. There's a sunset. I love the one where the couples are obviously going to have sex. And then they wake up suddenly in the morning having coffee and she's got his extra long nightshirt on and the sheets are rumpled. Question: <sighs> Again, we have to ask ourselves is what just got modeled? And what got modeled was you don't talk. No talk is the talk. There is no script. We rarely see a film where there's a really great script. In fact, what's really interesting, the course of this work, and by the way, when I was at Northwestern teaching all this and doing this work, a student once called me a horniculturalist, which I thought, <laughs> that's a new term for you. But I, I got a call from the New York Times and asked me if I would comment on Nicholas Baker's new book, Box, and uh, which is a phone sex conversation between two people, one on the East Coast and West Coast. It's about a three-hour phone sex conversation. And would I comment on it? Well, uh, I hadn't read it. So I said I was too busy at the time, but I ran out and got it. <laughs> and uh, fabulous, fabulous, hysterically funny, very erotic. Uh, it's, it's a short read. In fact, I had a focus group with the women reading it and responding to the book, again, as a possible source of data. And uh, th this here you see one of the few examples of a very creative use of phones, sex talk, 
uh, on a phone conversation. Very clear. I highly recommend Vox, uh, V-O-X. The other uh, thing that happens in film as well is that the couple climaxes at the exact same time. Oh, yeah. yeah Without yeah. fail. <laughs> yeah. And we don't see a lot of foreplay. No, and it's usually a more gratuitous imagery of the woman. I think it's come a long way, no, no pun intended, uh, than it than it had been in the past. But it usually in film, it was a a means to end of showcasing a naked woman, and now I think it's more more uh, an equality of male and female. Generally, we don't have a lot of imagery of same sex, of course, but that is out there. But yeah, but I think the climax still remains very male-focused. Now, what was interesting in, in my work, and I can't believe I got paid to do this, was I decided to study porn, porn films to see if that would be a source of uh, sex talk. And I'm very fortunate that another scholar beat me to it and a really noted uh, journal, Semiotics, uh, and he studied porn to look at uh, film. And I... and. As we know, porn is highly formulaic, usually moans and single syllable utterances and repetitive yes, 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 yes. Not particularly interesting. But in this article in Semiotics, uh, the author noted that, concluded that most of the utterances, I love this, were like a professor's comments in the margins of a student paper. Yes, keep going, penetrating. Oh, great, go deeper. I have to tell you that after reading this article, I became very self-conscious about my own margin notes. <laughs> You're never going to use the word penetrating when you grade somebody's papers. No, no, absolutely day. not. <laughs> That's uh, hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but so we have a very restrained vocabulary. We have very few uh, scripts that are out there that one could model anything out. And it's interesting. Uh, an analysis of soap operas found that Sexual tease happens on average 7.4 times an hour, but there's no mention at all uh, around contraceptions, STDs, safe sex, and, and virtually no sex talk. It's, it's very, very constrained. And then all, all we had was Nancy Reagan saying, just say no, basically, which is still the abstinence script that dominates a lot of sex education. Which is unfortunate because we all know that it doesn't do what it in fact does the opposite of what it thinks it's doing. Well, it's making people have more sex because their curiosity is peaked. They're like, what is this thing that I'm not supposed to do? How exciting. Yeah. 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 And it fills and it <laughs> the danger. I ask every female patient that I see if they're on birth control. And if they're not, I ask them if they want to be pregnant. And so, so many women nowadays, young and old, not on birth control, but don't want to be pregnant. And especially the young teens. I'm like, well, well, cause they've, they were only taught abstinence. Nobody ever talked to them about the final conclusion. It's almost like they don't put A to B to C. There's so also a weird guilt around uh, STDs and that people feel weird or guilty for saying, well, do you have an STD or I have an STD or whatever the conversation might lead to, which I've found fascinating because if you are, you know, this, the act of sex it, it requires a level of, it doesn't really require a level of maturity. Anyone can do it, obviously, but the, but there is a level of maturity to come together with this person and be like, okay, now we're going to have this act. And that my safety somehow goes out the window. It, it's such a weird psychological misstep in, in my opinion. 
well, did you talk about this stuff beforehand? No. Did you use a condom? No, I didn't want them to feel bad. Uh, it makes my skin crawl. As it happens kid. all the time. Yeah, I used to give talks at the uh, sororities on campus. And I sat around with a, a group of women and asked them, uh, you know, do they carry a condom when they go to a party and so forth? And they said, no. And we explored that. And they said, well, if they found a condom in their purse, if somebody else found it, it would make them look really slutty. So I, I posed to them, I said, so you're willing to risk STD and, and possibly death for that matter. With pregnancy. Yeah. Because of what this says about you. And basically they said yes. So I don't think we can dismiss the stigma around this. I mean, Murray Davis wrote a, a superb book. I, in fact, I consider it the best book on sexuality ever. Uh, and he was denied tenure because of it at Berkeley. I mean, it's very sad, but he's a brilliant, brilliant uh, theorist. And he wrote a book called Smut. Probably the title of the book didn't help his tenure portfolio. But anyway. <laughs> but it's Berkeley, uh, for God's sakes. <laughs> But I, I, in fact, I was so moved by this book. I consider it really the best book ever written because it, it, he tries to describe what happens between everyday reality and the slide into erotic reality, how time and space and objects and color, things shift. And it's just a brilliant analysis. In fact, I was so impressed with the book that I, I uh, was able to meet him when I was in San Francisco and we went out to lunch and he actually helped us shape by further research on play because he, he wrote a, a great book on play and humor subsequently to that book. But he, he writes in his book about prop failures that can happen. And condoms, in a way, are a prop failure. Uh, we have to realize that sexual contexts are very fragile. They're very well orchestrated. We're very sensitive to our settings, taking the mood, attention, our energy. And so, you know, like if a record is skipping or there's a knock at the door, it, it, it throws the whole sexual reality into chaos. Condoms can do the same thing for people, are things that might protect them. We, we just have to be sensitive that that's one of the constraints. You know, there's the linguistic constraints, there's the script constraints, there's the prop failure constraint. There's also the relational constraint. I mean, how is he going to see me? Am I a good girl, bad girl? Right. You know? But I think for a lot of young people, that's still a big challenge. I wouldn't even say young people. I think for older people, too. I don't think it. Yeah, across the board. There's a lot of shame around it. I think you bring up a great point that even though it's mirrored in young people in the sorority, that anyone who thinks about sex or is possibly sexual or wears a tank top or doesn't go with the bra on. And notice it's very female focused. You don't hear of this talk very much around uh, people with the male genitalia, but certainly women are vilified for being sexual beings. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So how are we supposed to feel comfortable as a teenager saying, please go get a condom, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Much less talk about it. My dear friend who has children, we were driving along, she's 13 at the time, we're driving along and I said, so do you have any boyfriends? Like what's going on? And cause she was boy crazy. And she said, well, you know, I like this one boy. I said, have you talked about, you know, are you sexually active? What are you doing? And she said, well, I said, for, is it first base, second base? She's like, well, what's that? And I said, well, first base in my generation was kissing second base, maybe a little bit up the shirt, third base, maybe, you know, kind of down the pants. 
home run would have been sex. And she said, oh, no, we have blowjobs now on first base. And I tried very hard not to react because I didn't want to to have that moment with her where I was somehow deeming it inappropriate. I I just thought, holy cow, kids have changed from when I was a kid. First base. It's escalated quite a bit. Yeah. But and, I don't think but so. like Mar, Dr. Mara here is saying, people still don't talk about it. The sexual activity has moved faster, but nobody is talking about it still. Five-year-olds watch porn. I saw that research and uh, my mind was blown. Yeah. Yeah. And, but, but a lot of this, you know, the women giving blowjobs is still usually favors the male. It's part of being accepted and it being, yeah, it's, it's, uh, really needs to be examined. It's all about the empowerment issue. I think ultimately, I think actually sex talk now that I think about it is all about empowerment. Yeah. You know, if you can't have a voice, how empowered can you be? Mm-hmm. Right. How do you bring that conversation to young people when you go to talk to them, the birds and the bees, and you say, this is the story of sexuality. How do you encourage people to find that voice? Well, one of the things I did was I did a uh, film called Say Sex Talk, which uh, starred uh, David Schwimmer was in it. He was a student of of drama uh, in the theater department when I was at Northwestern. A lot of wonderful uh, drama students were in it. They improvised all these scenes. Unfortunately, David, about a year ago, contacted me, asked me if I would remove it from YouTube. I just posted it out there. But it was seven vignettes of improvised scenes because we don't have any scripts or scenes and there were couples talking about safe sex before they were going to have sex in fact the cdc contacted me to use one of the scenes with actually ironically with david schwimmer he wanted to do a scene saying no to the female because he said all my scenes were the female saying uh no to the male because you know they didn't have a condom and so forth and he said you don't have any scenes of males and I looked at the women who were there and we all looked and said, because it's never been our experience. <laughs> but anyway, that was the scene that the uh, CDC wanted to use in their training. So, I mean, I would say, yeah, we, we need to plug for more scripts in, uh, on, in film, on television. Uh, we need to talk. We need to role play. We need to give help students, uh, young people develop scripts and so forth. I'm a big advocate for helping couples like develop phone sex as a way of uh, a prelude, if you will, an entree into the sex talk domain. I think finding a key metaphor that works for them, uh, using play, humor, codes, nicknames, whatever it takes to help facilitate baby talk is a a form, by the way, that I found in my research Uh, talk that suspends the rules and allows people to play. Okay. And I think having sex with no intercourse, you know, no goal in mind, just, just playing and talking and fantasy, as you mentioned, you know, I think these are all possible ways we can go beyond just our elongating our vows. (laughs) Do you think that David had an issue with the video from the past because of the messaging around sex? Well, I, I don't know. He, he was getting pissed off while we were filming because uh, the men, uh, it was all the women kind of uh, in control. And he said, you know, it's a very female, 
Yeah, Dominic, you don't have anything of males like taking control and saying, no, I don't want to have sex unless we have a condom. And I mean, I it makes a good point. I mean, I suppose that it is a rare occurrence, but it probably does happen out there in the world somewhere. <laughs> well, ironically, I think those are the scripts we need. And that's why the CDC wanted it. Yeah. We need scripts of males, you know, just like we need males at the uh, at the forefront of the pro-choice movement. We never see them, but they're at the anti-choice movement. Uh, we need to see males more taking control of the script that ensures safe sex, that models sex talk instead of just playing chess you know yeah i agree so look at him way ahead of his time (laughs) (laughs) i think he was was. absolutely let me ask you a question as therapists how would you model sex talk to clients i don't do that as much with my clients because usually they're a bit older and coming to me for more like communication relationship sexuality issues but with my patients, I do it a lot at the clinic. And so uh, I've had a couple of young people be like, I don't even know how to bring this up with my boyfriend. And I explain to them, you know, essentially have condoms, carry condoms is what I always tell them. It's okay to carry a condom. Anybody wants to have sex, you say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that without a condom. Also to have the pre-STD talks. And so before you're going to have sex, I encourage them to even before you're in the bedroom, have you ever had a sexually transmitted infection? When was the last time you got tested? So I encourage young people to have those talks before sex, get used to the idea of condoms. And of course, I'm talking to them about birth control at the same time. That's probably about as deep as I get with patients at the clinic, because of course, we have 15 minutes and who has more time than that? Than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have yet to experience, I would like to do more teenage clients, because I think it's very important, especially to start young and understand yeah. Like I pointed out, I'm not even great at it with my own partners. I I do it, but I'm not great at it. And so I I think the more we're taught that at a young age, the better we're going to do. We weren't taught any of this. And so we're still kind of floundering around trying to figure it out, right? It's the great taboo. I'm not a therapist. And when I do talk to people, adults included, not just young people, a lot of times women are the collateral damage in sexual relationships look at yourself as being worthy of saying, I'm taking my body. It's mine. I have dominion over it. It belongs to me and no one else. And I get to make those decisions. And also when it comes to sexually transmitted diseases to know that many are asymptomatic, many won't show just, it's not like you'll just look and go, Oh, that person has blah, blah, blah. That's not the reality. And so there is silent killers out there or, you know, and it may not kill you. It may just make you incredibly uncomfortable. It may affect the way you have children someday. It may, you know, there are STDs that lead to cancer. So I I have those real world consequence kind of conversations not terrifying, but just like the the fact of the matter is. And I think that when people hear things without fanfare, without the big pomp and circumstance where it's just matter of fact, I think it makes sometimes those conversations easier and it gets weird a little better. I agree with that. And that's my stance as a, as a sexologist and as a, as a medical provider is just matter of fact, 
it needs to happen in the beginning of dating, in the very, very beginning. I've had a client tell me that she still fakes orgasms with her partner she's been married to for 10 years. So there's yeah. never, you can always go backwards too. Pretend like you have amnesia and you're just starting over and sit down together and just start over. Away from the bed. Away from the bedroom. Conversation. We talked about, sometimes it's okay to talk about fantasies in the bedroom, but when you're talking about sex, that should be done out of the bedroom. And so I think you're right. People need scripts. And so anybody who's listening who needs more help, there's sexologists out there, there's coaches, there's counselors, but also just go online. I'm I'm curious, how did your self-awareness in sexuality change throughout the years as you were learning these different modes of uh, discussion and and different ways that people engage in sex and sexuality? Personally, I found I wanted more. I wanted more discourse than the intercourse. You know, I, I wanted to talk more. I wanted to find... And I never really found that, you know, I never found really a partner who liked verbal play. And uh, that's a really regret of mine, you know, and I still keep looking for it in film. We certainly see more, more scenes, more sexuality on TV. It's like soft porn. You know, they're really kind of pandering to the general audience people who wouldn't go out and see a porn film, but they could rent a, a, a film that's been rated highly and so forth. But we don't get a lot of the talk itself. In fact, I was really looking forward to that film, which I, I recently came online. Good luck, Leo Grande, with uh, the new Emma Thompson film on Hulu. But even in that film, there isn't, a, it's very clinical. You know, she, the talk is about, the sex it's not really sex talk itself i love the film don't get me wrong i I think it's a great film it was so good yeah but we don't really see or hear the actual sex the the arousing of erotic discourse and uh yeah that's unfortunate i think the question that i find most fascinating and the course of my work is this when does sex begin I mean, I believe that talk is sex. Talk is sex. So on our two weeks ago, we did fantasies. And I realized that Susan brings this up a lot. And I super, I told her, I said, you bring this up a lot. And I think you should bring it up on every single episode we do. She's like, remember people, sex does not start in the bedroom at the last minute at the end of the night. Sex starts in the daytime with talk and texting and flirting. And so this is a common theme that Susan reminds people of, which I super appreciate. So talk is very much uh, foreplay and it should start earlier on in the day than the sex piece. Yes. And, and even activities that may not have anything to do with sex. You'd be surprised how far it will go just to be, be a balanced partner to someone. That's a very sexy thing. Wait, explain, yeah. explain balanced. In, I didn't and, and meaning that if your partner has several tasks a day, take a couple of the tasks to, oh. to for, for, I think there's a rhetoric around parenting where it's like, oh, I have to babysit the kids. It's like, no, they're your children. You have to take care of your children. That's not just your wife's or your partner's job, mm-hmm. <laughs> stuff yeah. like that. You know, be, look at each other as, as equal beings. I don't I think there's so many layers to it. For me personally, I just think I am so in my brain all the time that like Dr. Edelman, I like conversation and I think that's certain like doing the crossword puzzle together. That's hot. 
It could be as simple as just touching as you go by or in the midst of a conversation with a group of people, you look at your partner and you just linger a little longer. Subtlety. Subtlety is a lost art in in many ways. You made a good point. I am really... I really focus in on and like the nonverbal cues and those pieces of it because then I don't have to say it as much. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start practicing my sex talk, Dr. Mara. It's going to happen. Yeah, that's great. I mean, you know, as, as what you were saying about uh, in a split second, you can have an erotic moment with a partner. I mean, I always tell couples, <clears throat> And we've had this happen, like we're dating somebody, we're not that excited about them particularly, but suddenly they'll do something. You'll watch them, with maybe the way they play with kids, the way they tell a joke. And in a split second, your whole assessment of that person has shifted and they've moved from maybe Mr. Nerd to Mr. Wow, you are something else, right? I think those little micro dots can happen in the course of every day. And uh, like you're saying, just looking at the table and you know, he or she will say something that's like, wow, that's impressive. You know, that's an erotic moment, you know, and those accumulate, they accumulate. And I think we're not, we, uh, because we're so focused on the, the big climax and the big O and, and so forth that we, we miss these little mini moments that build into erotic tension where you really desire your partner and you want to be together that happen in the course of the everyday, you know, and I would also argue that those are moments too for sex talk or a sexual compliment or something that just conveys that, that, uh, that feeling. Yeah. Consider letters A through N before you ever think about, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like that. What was the book again about the phone sex operators? I feel like if I read that, I'm going to be more likely to learn to be more verbal. Uh, You mean Box by Nicholas Baker? I'm going to read that because I do think there's something about being able to be verbal, not only for sexuality purposes, but safe sex purposes, all of it. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, as you were talking about, Mara, the, the importance for talking about safe sex, condom usage and so forth. I mean, talk in and of itself is sex and it's very arousing. And I think if couples could develop that, that within their relationship, mm-hmm. they would increase tremendously their sexual gratification. And how often they're having sex. So also I would say that men probably also don't get as verbal as they could possibly learn to be. And I often hear from clients, my male clients, I want to be having more sexual activity and I'm not. My female partner doesn't want to be having as much sex as I do. If they were more verbal, I'm betting those numbers would go high, those numbers would go up. Yeah. Uh, finding the, the erotic in the more subtle approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that funny scene again in Good Luck Leo Grandin when she talks about having sex with her husband, you know, it was a grunt, grunt, and then he rolls over. And it was absolutely, there was no talking, there was no subtlety at all in, in her umpteen year decades with this, with this husband. And it was quite sad. So, yeah, I think that what we have to realize ultimately is that talk, the symbolic, the linguistic world is what makes us human. Mm-hmm. And it can constrain us and it can release us. I mean, it can provoke us, it can bore us, but it can also be silenced. And it can be so threatening, the talk itself, that we would even risk death. 
And so I think that we, we need to rejuvenate. We need to find the playfulness, the joy, the humor, the eroticism in, in the discourse of intercourse and hopefully uh, sustain healthy passions. Amen. Every time you say that it could even lead to death, I get goosebumps. The fact that even with, uh, you know, with, with HIV, that people still feel so uncomfortable talking about condoms does, does blow my mind. Yeah. 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 Everybody should feel empowered, have a voice, speak their needs. I'm no, I'm sure I'm annoying though. I'm like, let's talk about (laughs) (laughs) the the other big thing that I, I'm an advocate of is self-pleasure because before you can articulate that, which brings you pleasure, you have to learn what that means for yourself. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a big believer in exploration of oneself so that you then might be able to share that with others for both male for for every gender for everybody males oh a hundred percent for everybody you know your own body so that you can then tell somebody else what it is that works for you not always leading to the big o there's so many other ways for people to have sexual activity and the verbal part should be included yeah yeah i i couldn't agree with you more uh but you know what interestingly enough I think masturbation is an incredibly taboo topic, more taboo than sex itself. I mean, intercourse, because it's just uh, the idea of self-pleasuring is highly stigmatized. And like, uh, we're so partner focused. And I would like to see, certainly see that altered. That's why I'm an advocate. Yes. Male masturbation is not as stigmatized as female masturbation because females are not supposed to have pleasure. And we're not supposed to be empowered to talk about things. And so it does really go back to that whole picture, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that she'd have pleasure without a male, unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to the island of Lesbos. Ah! Yeah. Dr. Edelman, tell people how they might find you if they need to reach out to you or they want to ask you questions or follow the, your research. Well, they can certainly Google me. There's a lot of my articles. They're mostly academic articles are online. I have book chapters ad nauseum. They're welcome to email me, mara at seattleu.edu. Mara, M-A-R-A, at Seattle U, at a U at the end of Seattle, E-D-U, for education. And uh, I would, you know, welcome any response. Uh, I'm really grateful for you guys having me on and, and making this a topic. It's really important. Thank I, you. We are honored to have you. Uh, when Mara told me that there was another Mara Edelman out there, I, was, I thought she was pulling my leg up for her. <laughs> <laughs> it's been fun. We've had a good time, Mara and I. It's great. I love it. Thank you for watching and listening, everyone. Share it with your friends and discover yourself and be proud of yourself and honor yourself and go out and have a ball. Pun intended. Enjoy. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.